Are you in a state of recovery? Do you want more clarity and direction? Have you built your foundation and wonder what lies beyond recovery? Do you want to discover what you are truly capable of? And are you ready to discover your purpose, learn to overcome your limiting beliefs, and change your mindset? Are you ready to discover the key to living a purpose-driven life? When we recover, we are returning to a normal state of health, mind, and strength. We begin the process of regaining control over something that was lost, but our journey doesn't have to stop there. This is the Road Beyond Recovery podcast. After overcoming my own 20-year battle of addiction to drugs and alcohol, I have now dedicated my life to empowering those in recovery to rewire their brain so they can change their story and enhance their recovery even further. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me on another episode of the Road Beyond Recovery podcast. So grateful you're here. And if you haven't done so already, I hope that you can join me at the first annual Rise Beyond Recovery Summit. It's happening in a few short weeks, April 4th through the 8th. You're going to hear from almost 30 speakers in recovery on how they overcame addiction, found recovery, and created a life so good for themselves that they never want to go back to their old way of living. Now, the event is free to attend, but you can also purchase a VIP lounge pass, which will give you lifetime access to the speaker recordings, plus a bonus gift from each of the speakers, which will help you enhance your own recovery. It's going to be absolutely amazing. Tickets are only 25 bucks. And the best part is that $15 of every ticket sold goes to the nonprofit organization Touched by Addiction, which if you've been listening to the show, you would have heard the guys from Touched by Addiction here. And we're going to help get someone in need into long-term treatment. You can find a link to the summit at www.risebeyondrecovery.ca or of course, it will be located in the show notes. Now, as I've shared Codependency is something that I've been investigating more of and realizing that I had some codependent behaviors that I needed to be a little bit more self-aware of. And it's been a very interesting journey. I had shared before, like it felt like, you know, this onion in drug and alcohol recovery got smaller and smaller as I began to peel the layers off. And then all of a sudden it started to grow again, right? I had more layers that I had to peel, but it's been such an amazing journey. It's allowed me to not always allow the behaviors of others to affect me. I can see my part in it. I can see where those protective devices start to come into play again. And so I'm super appreciative that today we are chatting with Sharon Martin, Uh, Sharon specializes in codependence recovery. We also talk about perfectionism and people pleasing. She is a mental health blogger and we talk about setting healthy boundaries and limits without feeling guilty. She also talks about the Better Boundaries workbook. And so I hope you enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome. Today I'm hanging out with Sharon Martin. How are you, Sharon? I'm great. Thanks so much. 
I am so grateful you're on the show because as we were talking about briefly uh, before we got started is codependency is one of your areas of expertise and that is an area that I'm really diving into and after nine and a half years of recovery I really like I feel like my onion has just grown right I peeled back all these layers and all of a sudden the onion just got really big <laughs> there's so many more layers to it so why don't you start off by introducing yourself who you are and what you do today Thank you. Thank you. And I, I love, I love the onion metaphor too. It's, it's one of my favorites. Um, yeah. So, so I'm Sharon Martin and I am a licensed psychotherapist in California. Um, I have a practice that's all online at this point. Um, and I do specialize in working with people around issues of codependency and people pleasing and perfectionism. Um, and that's, that's been a focus that I've had for, for quite a number of years now. Um, and I've, Kind of branched off in addition to doing um, the clinical work with people. I also enjoy creating various resources and tools, whether it's workshops or um, ebooks. Um, and I've written a couple of books as well. So it's nice to sort of diversify a bit and um, be able to share some of that information with more people. Um, you know, it's also why I love doing podcasts as well as, you know, it. It's tough. I mean, I really enjoy doing one-on-one -on -one therapy with people, but it's also very limiting in terms of the number of people that I can work with. So, um, you know, this is a great opportunity to just be able to talk with some more people and share um, a little bit more about codependency. And, you know, I hope part of it is, is destigmatizing some of it for folks. I think um, codependency is both a word that's probably somewhat misunderstood but I also think it, it can definitely have a, a connotation of blaming um, as well, which obviously is, is a really, you know, difficult feeling. It doesn't feel good. It's not necessarily, you know, you know, what we really want to feel like we're sort of labeled with that. So, you know, part of what I want to do um, is help people understand that a little bit more, um, you know, and it's, I don't actually love the word codependency myself, but I have yet to find any, anything else that actually isn't a better alternative to it. Um, some people have tried, but nothing has really stuck. So I think we're, I think we're kind of left with, with that word. And for me, it's a little bit more of like, let's just try to reframe it. Um, and maybe in, in a little bit more of a positive light, but also just in really understanding what that means so that there's less of those misconceptions and, and some of those negative associations that we have with it. I think like you're saying, it's also a great opportunity for us to do a lot of personal work and a lot of growth um, for ourselves. Um, you know, and, and I should, I should say, you know, I'm, I'm definitely speaking, you know, from personal experience as well. It's not, um, you know, I, I've definitely struggled with codependency and I did not really appreciate when somebody first told me that I was codependent. Uh, but I'm, you know, you learn to accept certain things. And, you know, as, as I was saying, yeah, I think it does become a place where you can, you can look at yourself a little bit more honestly. Um, and I think like, like everything else, it's hopefully people can take the parts of this conversation that resonate with them and, you know, leave the rest of it. If it's some of it doesn't fit, um, you know, codependency is definitely not an all or nothing um, kind of term. There's a lot of different pieces to it. And I think, you know, maybe, you know, we have different, you know, slightly different versions of it, if you will, or, you know, some aspects of it, you know, I might struggle with more and you might struggle with some different pieces of it. 
um, a little bit more, but it all kind of falls under that same umbrella. Yeah. And I love how you, you know, are trying to take away that stigma, right? Destigmatize, because that's one of the passions I have in in recovery now is to remove that stigma of addiction because so many people suffer from various types of addictions and you know codependency really could be one of those things and you know it's it's taking the shame away from it and 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 talking more openly about it which is I, what i absolutely love now you said you've been through your share of codependency and typically that is how we're inspired to do what we do today. So, you know, For what sure. inspired you to specialize in codependency recovery? You know, I, I think it was a gradual progression. And I, you know, I don't actually remember the exact, you know, point in time when I started really using um, that term, Um my husband's in recovery and has been for, for many years. Um, but really my, you know, my work around codependency started you know, before, you know, I even recognized that he had a problem with substances. Um, you know, I, I think it, it really was a little bit of that, that onion, you know, where you're just kind of looking at different aspects of yourself. And I think most of us have a natural desire to understand ourselves and a curiosity about, um, you know, why our relationships are working or not working and, you know, how we're perceived and understood and how we understand ourselves, um, you know, and I definitely knew, I think before I embraced codependency, I recognized the, the people pleasing and the perfectionism aspects of it. And I think it just, you know, kind of grew as I um, got a better understanding of what codependency is, um, that it started to be like, okay, like that makes sense. That's, you know, that's what this is. Um, yeah, and people pleasing. Oh, I can't. <laughs> like, I think, you know, even in my addiction, I, I bought books about people pleasing because I could see that I was doing it. And I never really looked at that as codependency. I had no idea what codependency was. And, you know, like I mentioned to you before, I actually just started working the 12 steps around codependency. And I'm finding it extremely eye opening because, we're, of course, we're talking about emotions, beliefs, and behaviors. And when I went to actually go highlight all the ones that pertain to myself, I was shocked, right? Mm -hmm. Because I do a regular 12-step inventory a couple times a year. And so I make sure that I do the work, but this really opened my eyes. And I believe that a lot of people that have suffered from drug and alcohol addiction and have gone into recovery could definitely benefit from this type of work. Do you notice that it's the same with some of the people you work with? Like, you know. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's not an either or, um, you know, I think, as we know that people who struggle with addictions struggle with all kinds of addictions often, right? It's not just, you know, one type, unfortunately. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we could make a case for whether um, codependency is a an addiction of sorts. Some people think it is, some people do not. I'm not sure it even is really what matters the most in terms of understanding it. Um, but but I think like like you were saying, um, when when you get into looking at what what recovery from that means, it's it's really about how you feel about yourself. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that people think it's about how you're interacting with other people 
Um, and that and that's only true really to the extent that that's just one manifestation of how you you know feel about yourself, what you think about yourself, the beliefs that you have uh, about yourself. So I think often people really think codependency is simply enabling, which is really a very small piece of it because, I mean, we're, even if we're not in a relationship with an addict or, you know, somebody who's struggling with mental illness or, or some other sort of dysfunctional, you know, behavior or circumstances in their life, um, we're still codependent, right? It's, it's within us. It's really a, a thing about me, not about, you know, the relationship um, per se. And I think that's where people sometimes get hung up and thinking it's the relationship itself that's codependent versus it's really, right, it's really the way that I'm behaving in that relationship that, that's the problem. Absolutely. And one of the things that became really glaringly obvious was, you know, when I just heard about the triangulation, right, and where you have the, you know, the um, culprit and the victim and of course in my addiction and when I was even younger my dad was always the tough love person right he was the one that you know tried to push me or you know would he he cared by tough love and my mom was always that caretaker and so whenever there was a need not being met in my life I would go to my mother right away and I realized that happened you know when I was younger throughout my addiction and now even in you know my relationship my romantic relationship if my needs aren't being met I will tend to seek those that are the caretakers even though for me that's not what I need and eventually I'm like whoa okay hold on I don't need that but that was really eye-opening mm-hmm mm-hmm so, yeah go ahead um so you know, in early recovery, we start to learn self-acceptance and self-compassion. And how important is that for codependency recovery as well? Well, that's essentially the task at hand. I mean, if you were, <laughs> if I was to sum it up, that's exactly what it would, um, you know, like I was saying, it's less about thinking about the relationships that you're in, but really thinking about um, how you feel about yourself and really there's a very strong component of self-worth that I think underlies all of it. Even, even that little example that you were giving, um, you know, you know, I could hear that element of, I mean, that you're, you're seeking some kind of, I don't know if it's validation um, or acceptance or somebody to kind of take care of you and tell you you're okay and it's going to be all right. And again, to some extent, that's okay. Like that's a natural human thing to, you know, be in connection with other people, of course. But when we're when we're codependent, we're looking for other people to do, I'd say most or all of that for us because we don't really have the ability to do it for ourselves. It's hard for us to, you know, like validate our own feelings and trust our own instincts and be able to sort of take care of ourselves in that way when you're talking about, you know, self-compassion. Um, we're often really, really good at, you know, taking care of other people and tuning into what they need um, and, you know, being able to do, you know, whatever it is or say whatever it is that's going to help somebody else. But we're not good at doing the same thing for ourselves. There's almost an element of, 
minimizing or neglecting our own needs or our own feelings because again, it's, it's probably not a conscious thought, but, but really underneath it's, it's a sense that I'm not as important. My needs don't matter as much. My feelings don't matter as much. Um, and so I'm putting out all of this energy and effort to take care of other people. Again, it might be like a physical taking care of, but it's often an emotional. Um, and sometimes it, it is that sort of almost walking on eggshells around people. It's not necessarily making them happy per se, but it's trying to not upset them, um, which is very similar, right? I mean, there are some people who just really aren't ever gonna be happy no matter what you do, but but we, we, we work really hard at trying to not have them be upset with us. Um, and that definitely, you know, gets into that, that people pleasing aspect of it. Yeah, and that's something that I notice, right? Because I, throughout my recovery, I've learned to deal with situations. So when I feel that someone isn't allowing me to apologize or say my piece, I start to tell these stories in my head, right? And oftentimes, like you said, it's the validation because I sought that when I was young from my father, right? And he's always like, well, you could do better. You could do better. And so nothing, and that's where the, the perfectionism came in because I was like, okay, well, I have, I have to have somebody tell me that I'm good enough and that I'm doing okay. Right, because you, you don't really believe it's true unless somebody else is saying it. Um, right. And I think, right, we're trying to now make this shift into being able to do a good part of that for ourselves. I mean, partly because, you know, we're adults. Um, it's different, you know, when we're children to, to some extent. Um, but also, I mean, you can just think of it, it really does create an emotional dependency on people if you're relying on them for all of your emotional needs and to make you feel okay about yourself. Um, the other thing that's really problematic about that is, is, is like you're describing, you know, inevitably somebody is not going to be happy with you. They're not going to like you. And then it can be so crushing for us because we have let other people essentially determine our value or our self-worth um, instead of when we have our own internal self-worth, then we can tolerate other people's criticism or rejection, dislike, any of those negative experiences, because they can they can still hurt, of course, but they aren't, you know, sort of that soul crushing, like I'm worthless feeling that we have afterward. I can, I can, you know, sort of almost tap into that more rational part of my brain and say, well, this person is unhappy with me for X, or this person really, you know, we just don't get along and they don't really like me. And I can say, okay, and that's okay. And that is a natural experience that everybody has. It doesn't mean I'm an absolutely terrible person and have no worth. Um, you know, I, you know, I'm terrible at my job or something like that. And um, there's the ability to, I think, keep things in balance. Um, yeah, and that's something that I'm learning. It's it's an interesting, I mean, there's some days where I'm really good and I'm like, I know what I'm doing is right. I know I'm worthy, but it is an ongoing struggle. And, you know, can you talk about how treating ourselves with kindness when we're struggling and mm. we make a mistake can help us do better in the future? Yeah, um, I, I love to. And 
there's, I mean, first of all, there's, there's lots of research on self-compassion that supports this. So for people who are skeptical and like to question, you can look it up. Um, there's, there's an, a whole lot of it. Um, and I say that because it, sometimes it feels like it's contradictory um, that if we're going to be gentle with ourselves, we're going to be kind to ourselves that maybe then we're not going to be motivated to change or we're not going to sort of have that push um, to do better the next time. And I think, I mean, I think this is an idea that society has perpetuated and probably a lot of us have gotten a lot of very direct messages, um, almost, you know, sort of like that tough love message. Like that's the only way that you're going to change is if, you know, somebody's over there, you know, cracking the whip and, you know, shaming you and telling you you're awful as if that's going to make you want to be a better person. And, you know, for the vast majority of people that really does not work or it might work in the short term, but now we have generally, you know, added on an additional problem, which now I just feel really crappy about myself, even more so than I did before this other person told me um, how terrible I was and how, you know, awful uh, my behavior was and how much I needed to change it. Um, you know, and I, I think of self-compassion really is so helpful from the standpoint of you think about how you would treat another person who was struggling with something. Um, and I, I mean, I really believe that almost everybody is, is good at taking care of other people, that we know how to be compassionate towards other people. If we see somebody struggling, um, we, we, want to help them. I think that's a natural human instinct is to care about other people. Um, but we're not good at doing the exact same thing for ourselves. And I think the other piece of it is that sometimes we really don't realize how much we're struggling. Because in order for us to be compassionate, we first have to see that, th that somebody is suffering. Right. When you think about that with other people is that I don't just, you know, show up at my friend's house with with chicken soup for no reason. But if I know that she's sick, then I show up with the chicken soup and, you know, the flowers and, you know, the compassionate um, behavior. And I think when it comes to ourselves, again, we're often just not really paying attention or we're minimizing and say, oh, it's nothing. Um, that's not so bad. Um you know, it's like, I think we sort of get used to a certain amount of pain and suffering that we just say, well, that's just, you know, how it is. Um, and so it doesn't register that, oh, okay, I'm having a hard time. So I need to take better care of myself. I need to be kinder to myself. Um, and, and the other thing that I think sometimes can be helpful um, is for people who are parents themselves, is you can think about how this concept works with your children. Um, and again, if you see that your child is struggling with something, going through a really difficult time and think, well, what is the approach that's more likely to be helpful? Um, what is really going to, I think, nurture, you know, their self-esteem, um, who they are. We don't want to just be cutting people down um, and telling them they're bad people every time they make a mistake. Um, but I think this, there's the other element that people are concerned that if they're just kind to themselves when they make mistakes, that there's no accountability. 
And that's not really what, what self-compassion is about. It's about holding both of those at the same time so that there is accountability. Um, it's not that I'm ignoring um, the mistake that I made or if I've hurt another person, something along those lines, I still need to deal with that. And right, I still need to make that right if I can. Um, and you know, certainly at least acknowledging it for myself, but it's the ability to hold both of those things at the same time, right? That I can say, okay, I need to make amends here. I need to do better with this in the future. And here's how I'm going to do it. But I can do all of that from the place of being kind um, and compassionate with myself. And the idea is that by doing that, it actually creates, you know, a, a better, you know, breeding ground for the new sort of improved behavior that I'm going to do going forward. Um, instead of that opposite of trying to improve yourself when you're made, you know, you're either somebody else is making you feel really lousy or you're making yourself feel really lousy. Um, you know, it's sort of like, it's hard to do better when you're feeling really badly about yourself. And, you know, I think most people have had experiences of that, of um, trying to, you know, embark on some kind of self-improvement, you know, project, um, but but it's hard to do when you really don't have a lot of confidence in yourself or you really don't believe that you're worth the investment of that time or energy. So very true. And so much of what you said resonated with me. Now, of course, being an entrepreneur, and I'm fairly new, I've been doing this um, full time since March of this year. Um, but there are still times when I definitely struggle, right? It's not always easy. I think for me, it's really important to continue having that mindset that I look at all my mistakes and things that go wrong as opportunities to improve. And that's something that I've really personally had to work on. Um, and I'm also powerless over the behaviors of others because that's mm -hmm. something, especially, you know, being an author now and having a podcast, I make myself open to constructive criticism or just criticism in general, right? Because yeah. not everybody's yeah. going to like what I'm doing. They'll think, you know, who are you? You know, you're a recovering alcoholic sharing your story. Like, who do you think you are? And so that is something that I realized was a trigger for me is that when somebody doesn't know me and they criticize me, I can sit in that for days, right? Yeah. Because I'm like, hey, I'm just trying to be honest and vulnerable. And it almost causes me to clamp up. But I think my purpose is so strong. I know why I'm doing it that I just have to, you know, let that kind of stuff go. So do you believe that, you know, being codependent can make that kind of thing worse for you if it's not treated? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, and I think it's, a, I think it's common for so many of us that criticism is painful, but like you're saying, it's it gets a little bit easier when we're able to separate who we are as people i think even from the work that we're doing even if it's very personal in nature um and you know talking about ourselves we have to go into that you know with with the understanding and the acceptance that that is not going to resonate with everybody that some people are not going to like what you're doing you know and we also know that you know, online forums and so forth, you know, they just are very easy places for people to be mean. Um, 
and sometimes, you know, what they're saying about you really has nothing to do with you. You're just sort of a convenient target. Um, but, but I think like you're saying, even when we know that in, you know, that logical part of our brain, it doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't hurt right on the emotional side of it. Um, because I think we're, we're always challenged by this, you know, desire to, you know, fit in and be accepted, um, be liked. And, and it definitely is a balancing act of saying that's important, but it's impossible for that to be true with every single person. Absolutely. Right. So I think it's it's more like if we can almost be selective with it, like the people who are truly important to you in your life, those are the people whose criticism actually matters. Um, it doesn't mean it's true per se. It just means that's that's a relationship where it's important to explore that a little bit more and figure out what's going on versus, you know, strangers on the Internet. Um, you know, they can just say whatever they want. Um, and it, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough still. Um, I, I mean, I, I definitely, um, have had those kinds of experiences too. Um, even when, when the things that people have, have said, just, they honestly don't even make any sense. Like, I know they're not true. It's so clear. And yet it's still, it's still irritating right? <laughs> that somebody has misunderstood, um, or, you know, right? Taking something the wrong way and so forth. But, you know, it is that ongoing process of letting it go, right? I mean, I, I think that's the best, you know, way I can think about it is it's just, it's a process. It's not a, I can just turn that off. It's little by little letting that mean less and less to me. Yeah, absolutely. I was talking to a friend the other day and she was saying, you know, you love wholeheartedly. Don't ever stop being the way you are. And I said, sometimes, though, I wish I could switch that off because the littlest things will affect me and I wish they didn't. She's like, don't even don't even think about it. Like, you can't turn that side of you off. No, you probably you can't. And right, you wouldn't be you if you did <laughs> completely. But we do need to be, you know, mindful of um who we're sharing things with. And of course, when you're, when you're working in a public forum, um, I mean, that that's what you're doing. <laughs> yes. right? um, is sharing, you know, your heart and your soul with people. Um, and right, if you're going to do that, um, we have to know that that it's not going to be the message that some people are ready to hear, or maybe it's not the message for them ever. Um, and right, we have to be okay with that. You know, and I think maybe it helps a bit also to, to focus on, you know, the people that you are helping, um, you know, the supportive messages, the, you know, comments of people who've, you know, written and, you know, said how much what you're doing is helpful. Um, you know, and of course for, for all the people who do that, there's many more who don't, um, but that you are helping, um, as well. Yeah. And I think that is honestly what keeps me going, right, is working with people, seeing the progress, because I really kind of work with those people who are lost, right? Their identity is they're a single stay-at-home mom or they're a corporate, 
you know, that's all they know and getting them to believe that they have a purpose, right? That's, that's greater and getting them to get excited about waking up in the morning. And so when you get that feedback, it's incredible. And anytime I am having a tough day, I remember that, right? I have a client that actually I have it posted up. She sent me a handwritten letter mm. about how much of an impact I had made. And all I have to do is look at that and go that that's my why, right? That's what I want to achieve. So Let's talk a bit about boundaries. So boundaries <laughs> is something that I had to learn in early recovery. I read a book on it as well. Can you share some strategies for setting boundaries that support our personal well-being, healthy mm. relationships, and reaching our business goals? <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Thank you. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I say that because, you know, boundaries are a challenge for so, so, so many people. Um, so folks who are listening, um, you know, feel like, oh, boundaries, that's, you know, that's, you know, eluded me. Um, still, I, I think you're not alone for sure. Um, let's see, in terms terms of, you know, what do you do? I think, again, it's helpful to just start thinking, first of all, about really understanding what boundaries are, because um, often I think people, uh, you know, maybe knowingly or, un or unknowingly, um, try to use boundaries to control other people. And that is not what a boundary is actually all about, right? That is you being controlling, um, right? That's coming out of that fear and anxiety, that that unsettled feeling. Um, and, and it is true that sometimes um, we, as part of setting boundaries, we're asking somebody to make a change, to stop doing something. It's a limit that we're setting. Um, but we all know at the end of the day, we can't make other adults do much of anything, right? We might have some influence. And again, those are our, our more, you know, personal, important relationships. Um, and we want to make sure that, you know, we're being relational in the way that we're asking, because that's what it is. It is a request that you're making. It can't be a demand. That's not going to be well received, Um but, but I think the most important thing is to remember that even if um, somebody else is not going to respect your boundaries, they're not going to make the change that you're asking them to make, you still have choices. And there are things that you can do to take care of yourself. And that's really what, what a boundary is all about. Uh, I really think it's, it's, it's a form of self-care. Um, it can be literally something that you need to do to protect yourself physically or emotionally from somebody who's being hurtful towards you. Or it might be something that you do to protect um, some of your time or your finances. Um, there's you know all kinds of different types of boundaries, but, but essentially those are all things that we do um, so that we can be sure that we have the resources for the things that are the most important to us, right, that, that we can live our lives in accordance to our own values. Um, and then the other piece of boundaries that sometimes gets lost is that a boundary is also part of defining who you are as a person. And, and this really, I think, touches on, on codependency as well, because when, when we're 
when we're codependent, often that sense of self is really lacking. As we've been talking about, um, we don't have, I mean, we both don't have the ability to really be assertive and say, hey, please stop doing that. That's hurting me. Um, but we can also sort of what I just sort of refer to as sort of losing our sense of self because there's so much of this deferring to other people. Um, and often this is in terms of things like, you know, their opinions, their needs, what they like, everything is okay. I want to do things to make them happy that, that I'm really just losing who I am as a person. Cause I'm, I'm just agreeing with, with everything that somebody else um, believes, thinks, wants, needs, so forth. And so the, the boundary is also a way of, you know, sort of keeping yourself as a separate individual. And I don't mean separate in terms of like being alone or being lonely. Um, I'm just talking about sort of maintaining an individual sense of self, but, at, but, still definitely being in relationships with people, um, right? Because the opposite is, is really the idea of like enmeshment. And I don't know if, you know, people have, have really um, delved into that, but that, that's when there's essentially no boundary between who I am and who you are. And this often happens um, in, in the families that we grow up in. I mean, it, it's, and then we can, of course, replicate it in, in the families that we have um, later in life too. But but often, you know, parents and children can be enmeshed in the sense that the child really hasn't had the opportunity. They're not encouraged. They're not allowed to just be who they are as individuals. There's a sense like that. That's not acceptable who you are, or people are going to be very angry in your family if you disagree you know, you'd be considered, um, you know, disloyal. It's, you know, wrong for you to have a different opinion, a different religion, a different, you know, point of view on things. And so there's so much of that. Like, I just got to like shut down who I am and be who other people expect me to be. Um, and that's, that's a different, you know, type of boundary, but it's a really important piece of boundary work as well is um, knowing who we are and, and feeling okay about that and not, not letting ourselves slip into that, um, you know, enmeshment kind of um, relationship. Absolutely. Now you have a new book, uh, The Better Boundaries Workbook, which is perfect time for you to share about that. Can you share a bit about the book and then of course, where people can find it? Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, the book just came out and I'm, I'm really excited. Um, I, I really enjoy workbooks because I think it gives folks the chance to not just read and get the information that they need, but there are also all these practical exercises and reflective questions. And the material that is in the workbook is really um, a compilation of all the different tools and things that I use with my clients and that I've developed over years of working with people on boundaries. Um, so like I said, I think it's great because you get this, you know, ability to actually do the work, you're practicing, you're applying it. And that's really what helps us learn um, things, I think in a way that both that we can actually use, but it really sticks with us um, more than when we just are reading something. Um, so yeah, so the boundaries, uh, the Better Boundaries Workbook, it's it should be available at 
all major bookstores. It's, you know, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, I don't know, wherever people are buying books, you should be able to find it at this point. Yeah. Awesome. And we'll make sure we put a link in the show notes as well so people can easily find that. So if people want to learn more about what you do, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah. Um, my hub is over at livewellwithsharonmartin.com. And um, I've got tons of free stuff over there that I have uh, again, created over the years. I've got lots of blog posts and articles about all these kinds of stuff, but also a whole free resource library if people want to um, sign up for that. Um, there's lots of other worksheets and handouts and um, codependency recovery stuff. Awesome. I am definitely going to be checking it out after the show because that's an area <laughs> that I'm incredibly yes. passionate about right now. So thank you for spending the time with us. And, and I just think this is so valuable for people even, you know, even if they're not in recovery, but for, especially for people in recovery, because I think this is a problem that a lot of us suffer from and don't take the time to look at. So thank you for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and don't forget to check out the show notes so you can learn more about what Sharon does. And of course, if you haven't already, make sure you pick up your VIP lounge pass for the Rise Beyond Recovery Summit. It's happening April 4th through April 8th. The event is free to attend or you can pay the $25, which is only a few cups of coffee and $15 of every pass sold goes to Touched by Addiction to get someone in need into long-term treatment. Again, you can find those passes at www.risebeyondrecovery.ca. I hope to see you there. I have had the privilege to walk alongside of many people who have built their foundation and further enhanced their recovery. But unfortunately, there are still so many people who are still suffering that need our help. The Road Beyond Recovery podcast is a proud sponsor of Touched by Addiction. Addiction thrives in isolation and darkness. Darkness cannot exist in the presence of light. So if you or someone you know has been affected by addiction, there is help. At Touched by Addiction, we are dedicated to exposing addiction and ending the plague. Be that beacon of hope and light that so many desperately need. Each t-shirt or sweater you buy helps to get a struggling addict off the streets and into a year-long addiction treatment program. If you want to support the movement, go to www.touchedbyaddiction.com.